A very uh, much welcome to Monahan Magan here on the Nordic Animism channel. I was uh, uh, really excited when I suddenly uh, came across your work here at some point last week, and I rushed to write you before uh, before even like <laughs> actually sitting down and reading your books, for which I apologize. I, I was a little bit head over heels there, uh, but I'm uh, super interested in uh, hearing what you have to say. I, I, I've listened to some of your different podcasts these last week and, 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 and kind of now I feel like going to Ireland very much. Um, and and I mean, do you have any examples of, of what we sometimes talk about as land connectedness specifically to Ireland? Yeah. Um, so as you say, any people who survived as long as we did, the Bronze Age people, the four and a four and a half thousand years on a very hostile Atlantic rocky island must have learned how to live gently and sustainably in a harmonious way with the landscape. And like last year, so about two years ago, I had a book called 32 Words for Fields, <laughs> which basically looked at the insights that the Irish language gives into how we did live on the landscape, live with the woodlands. Live with the, I mean, the name of the book says it all, 32 Words for Fields. So like um, Quiveron is a field worked in partnership with a neighbour. Tour is a night field. Um, Rayan is an upland field. Taunach is an arable field in an arid area. Cluin is a meadow field. Machan is an open field. Monair is an open, is an enclosed field. Redland is a field for game dancing. Bjoroch is a marshy field. Bronner is a fallow field. Bonog is a field that being made level by years of dancing. Now I can go on. I can list the full thirty-two. In fact, I have forty different. But that's what happens when the one people are on a very limited bit of land and need to know that every inch of that land so that they can survive. But what's interesting, in the last probably two years, I would have done a lot of work, um, Zoom calls during COVID with different indigenous people in the States and elsewhere. And of course, they have beautiful words, but they're not farming words. You know, they're actually words about recognizing the innate power and right and beauty of the land and its elements because we're a farming people a lot of our words are kind of exploitative in that way mm. but the one thing you don't see that is i remember when you go to america now and you meet uh, uh the descendant of an irish american who arrived during the famine they say why did we leave why did our ancestors die why did a quarter of the population either starve or have to flee were we so ignorant? We were on an island surrounded by fish, surrounded by seaweed and, and shellfish. Why didn't we eat them? Were we so ignorant? And we really, like any colonized people, you don't have your own, you don't believe, you don't trust in yourselves. You think it was our own inaptitude or, in, or, in, or, um, or our ignorance. But actually, if you look at the language, which you see very clearly is we were very deeply rooted to our surroundings and particularly to the coastal lore. So um, I am, um, I said, I spent, Last year, the year before, I did a big tour going around Ireland asking, looking for fishing words. And I'm doing the same. In about three weeks, I'll be down in the southwest of Ireland talking to fishermen. And the fishermen, the words, they're like murlu. Murlu is the churning up of little baby green crabs and the spitting out of them into the water to be used as bait for mm. to attract other fish. Yeah. Our suitu. Um, suitu is the sound that the water makes when it's um, rushing through a cove and moving a load of little pebbles around in it. Our starter, starter, the large jagged rocks of prominence. I could give you another 22 different words yeah, yeah. for different types of rocks. But actually one really good word in that is Boroite. And Boroite is an underground reef 
that is, sorry, an underwater reef. If you and I looked out at the sea off Galway coastline, we wouldn't see anything. But a fisherman knows that there's a buraita, an underwater reef, and that on top of this reef is a rich forest of kelp. And in that forest of kelp, you will find which is Ballon Ras and, and Pollock. And any fisherman knows at any time if they're hungry, they just need to go out and go out to the um, to the area that I don't see, but the area where they know there's a Buraita, put a net or a line down and they will get fish. Now, in this day of age with, with um, echo sounders, you could say you don't need that information. But actually, if we do, if we ever were going back to an area where we weren't able to depend on all these things, um, we might we might need them. So there's practical information about the sea from the fishermen, but also words how the sea had its own mysterious element. There's a word, um, which is the sense of loneliness you get and the other the other worldly voices that you hear at the night at night on the beach. Kablu is the same. It's the mysterious ancestral voices you hear on the beach at night. So it's showing that the land was was alive for people. Uh, I remember hearing somewhere that the uh, fishermen on uh, Orkney was maintaining Norn, the, the their original language, which I think was a Nordic language, uh, when they were at sea, uh, and and that they would consistently use that language when they're at sea. Uh, w when you're telling about this intensely relational groundedness of this language, that it's, it, it's so, it has such a level of specificity, which is so practical, it's so useful, it, 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 it means like it, there is direct survival technicality in that language. I wonder if basically that like, if, if you would meet uh, that these fishermen, that they, that they basically, they maybe use English, I don't know, at the pub or in some situations, but when they are out dealing with this environment where they have an incredible, uh, basically, vocabulary to, to, to conceptualize, they might basically stay in, in, in the old language. Mm -hmm. Not the old language, that's a bad way of saying it. In the Gaelic language. No, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, the tragedy is the fishermen meeting are the old men, they're the old men. The young ones have all been bought out by the government. You know, when we joined the EU in 1974, the one condition we went, we made, we had to give up our fishing. We had to give up that vast area of land we have to the side to the southwest of ours. So <clears throat> the government had a policy to buy out the fishermen. And of course, the fishermen were on the west coast of Ireland, which is where the Irish language was. So not only is most of that ancient DNA, the Bronze Age DNA, to be found on the wild west coast of Ireland, which is the rockiest area, the poorest area, the most uh, the most wild area. That's also where the old, where most of the old stories and literature is from, and it's where the Irish language is still spoken. <laughs> so the richest cultural area that had kept alive this wisdom that going back to Vedic times, back four thousand years, some of this knowledge actually was knowingly wiped out from economic for economic reasons when we joined the EU and said no, all that fishing needs to be removed. And of course, there no one else. There was no other job, so they all left and. The younger generation learned English, and so it breaks the heart of these old fishermen to say the young ones. You can ask the young ones; they don't know any of these words. They don't know this way of being in tune with the land. I'm afraid. I um, uh, but you mentioned also that there's a spiritual connection uh, in this. Uh, would it be then in in the southwest of of Ireland that that people are, for instance, uh, seeing um, 
other than humans, what we would call spiritual creatures, mm. mermaids, uh, these kind of spirits. Is that still a thing there? Or is it, or is that, because that has a tendency over the last, I don't know, 200 years to, to decline in, in Northern Europe. Uh, and sometimes yeah. people are pretty explicit about it. It's like, yeah, you know, in, in, in the last generation, we used to be able to see them, but now they seem to have gone away. Um, how, how is the that yeah. level of contact? So I'll give you two answers. But in one, when I was asking the fishermen in Galway, particularly in the middle of Ireland, off the, where the Iron Islands are, I said to them, they said, if the old fishermen said, if they were leaving the harbour or if they were leaving the an anchor point, they would always go sunwise. They would always go deshal. They'd always orient, deshal is the Irish for sunwise. You orientate yourself in rhythm with the, with the um, solar system with this burning star at the center of our solar system. So that even when I went out onto Inishir, the island, a fishing island off, off the coast of Galway, I was telling them that long ago, we used to use the word deshal as a blessing. And they said, oh no, we still use that today. They said, if someone sneezes, you say dealing, God be with you. But if someone coughs, you say deshal, sunwise. Basically it's pure paganism. You are hoping that the person goes in honor and in harmony with the direction of the, of the sun. So that idea of the pagan world is still very powerful, um, you know, e e in these words. But like with regard to the, the fairy folk. So at the moment I do a show, I go around the country with a show where I bake bread, sourdough bread, traditional bread. And uh, I we yeah, and I churn butter in the traditional way. And um, in every room I do it in, I say I tell people, I say I'm putting a cross on top of the loaf of bread. And I say, why traditionally do we put a cross on top of the loaf of bread in Ireland? And nobody says because of the church or because of Jesus. They all say to let the fairies out. So not everyone, but maybe 10, one between five and 10% of the room know this, to let the fairies out. So there's so many things in Ireland. Like when we're churning the butter, I tell them that when I go around the country, people won't allow me churn the butter because I'm left-handed. Left-handed. And they say the fairies will never allow a fairy, a, a left-hander churn butter. The butter just won't do it. The, fair, the fairies um, will, just, will, will, will get in the way. So... There was a very strong belief in fairies in all of Europe, in all of the world until relatively recently. And in some of Europe until recently, but they sort of say electricity. Electricity didn't reach everywhere in Ireland until the 1970s. So there was definitely a strong, I mean, when I was growing up, there was still a sense of the fairies. In other words, in 1970s in West Kerry, and my grandmother, I'm sorry, my mother saw a leprechaun. She definitely saw a little leprechaun. She, she knows she did. But when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s, people would still, particularly old men on the way back from the pub, would see otherworldly creatures and would engage with them. And in fact, I made a, I did an article for the Irish Times for the National Newspaper of Record a few years ago, where I rang all the main government organisations. I rang the, the electric, electric Supply Board and I rang the Solicitors Union and I rang judges' offices and I rang the Road Safety Authority. And rang all these and said, what's your official take on the fairies? Because, you know, there was this road, there was a motorway that was being built in the west of Ireland about 12 years ago now. Could be longer. And uh, a local shanachy, a local storyteller said, you can't have the road going there. There's a fairy bush there. You cannot destroy the fairy bush or the fairies will be angry and they will just curse the road and they'll be damaged forever. So they pretended, this was Clare County Council, pretended to ignore them and just laugh at it. But in fact, if you go and look at that road today, it is definitely, it runs round the fairy bush. They pretended they ignored it, but they did make, make sure they avoided the fairy bush. Yeah. So it is still, 
an element. What's beautiful is there's something that, you know, particularly our Icelandic cousins, which are what, six, 62, well, at least 52% Irish and then the rest Scandinavian, they've kept this sense that the land is alive, that there are beings in a playful way. Ireland definitely, our, our older generation definitely had it. It's just a hard thing because if you, if someone comes up from the government and says, do you believe in fairies, you're going to say no. But at the same point, if if you're told to knock down a fairy bush or to do anything that you know will disappoint the fairies, you're not going to do it. You are yeah. never know yeah. going to do it. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, Icelanders, uh, the, in Iceland, uh, you find, to me, uh, from what I know, it, it seems like it's a part of, of Europe that has been so isolated that that they're, uh, and also insular, a little bit, little, perhaps more than Ireland, uh, uh, and you really find some very intense stuff. I recommend the uh, documentary uh, by Jean Rouge uh, called um, uh, Enquête sur le monde invisible, uh, which is basically a series of interviews with I Icelanders about stuff they saw, and it's amazing. You have stuff like a, a school class who are seeing a dragon flying outside their, their window, and they're, they're looking at it together, the teacher can also see the dragon and, and they end up like saying, okay, so let's draw, draw, draw images of the dragons or the drawing images of the dragon together. I'm like, damn, that, that's, that's, uh, I mean, I've met stuff like that in Africa, but, 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 but not in, not in Europe with that level of intensity in the perception. Um, and, uh, and something I'm thinking about a lot is, uh, uh, to what level that can be seen as related to language specifically. But perhaps we can come back to that uh, I'm there because there was a couple of other questions I really wanted to to uh, kind of uh, put to you. It, uh, with listening to you, it seems like a lot of um, practices of land connectedness uh, seem to have gone through, uh, or they seem to have, been, been brought into a Christian idiom in Ireland. And it seems to me also that you guys perhaps caught a, uh, you caught a case of Christianity that has been a little bit less malevolent than the one we got on this side of the pond. Like Protestantism has been extremely uh, sort of destructive to, to practices of land connectedness. But can you explain a little bit how, that sort of relation between the how previous perhaps animist practices are transformed into irish christianity or brought on in irish christianity yeah so you see the difference as you say between ireland and scandinavia but also between ireland and the scottish islands scottish islands that took uh protestant faith like we spoke the same language gaelic until the 12th century in fact our written form the scottish gaelic and the irish gaelic were the exact same until the 16th century we are very close and yet if we meet now, we are leagues apart because luckily we managed to keep the old lore alive. How do we do that? One way is because, you know, the poet is, is uh, obviously has a high profile in Ireland in terms of uh, Yeats and even writers, Beckett and Joyce, because the poet in Ireland, the filler, the filler was a direct descendant of the Druid. So when St. Patrick came, you know, our Druids were our they weren't just our spiritual leaders, but they kept the genealogical records, the memories of our past ancestors. 
they kept the stories. Some of the stories seem to go back to 10,000 years ago, to the first settlers coming over to Ireland. We have these stories that seem uncanny to give information about where the floodwaters of the ice sheet were washing off the land nine or 10,000 years ago. So all of that was kept preserved within the lit written lore through us, the Bronze Age people who arrived four and a half thousand years ago, but seemingly perhaps through the Neolithic people who came before them and the hunter-gatherer before them. But anyway, by the time St. Patrick arrived in 430 something, 438 uh, AD, we had these, the Druids were keeping all of the history alive, all of the folk songs and myths alive, which as we now realize, we brought from India. They're the exact, well, we brought from, you know, where Eastern Europe meets Western Asia. Um, so where, which are now in India. So they're, you know, 4,000 years old. We had all of that inside the minds of the Druids. St. Patrick and his followers say, okay, you can stay, but you can't have your gods anymore. We have a new God, but the Druids can continue with all of the, the power of the word. So like in Ireland, um, the, we know the first word, in terms of our mythology, we know the first words were said in Ireland. There were these words that summoned up the landscape. And there was Amargain was our first great Druid and poet. And he summons up the land. He goes, I'm grey, I'm well, I'm the wind on the sea. I'm ton trehen. I'm the ocean wave. I'm Fuan Mara, I'm the sound of the sea. I'm Dav Shach Mirand, I'm a stag of seven times. I'm Shaukh Eril, I'm a hawk on the cliff. He goes through every single element of our world and he makes clear how they were all interrelated between this existence and all others. It is our declaration of intent, our declaration of um, the creation of the world. Awesome. So, yeah, so, <laughs> Sorry, I just had to lose spit that in. <laughs> Go on. So Dru the Druids then, they take on, the after St. Patrick, the Druids are allowed to continue with being the kings of the word. So um, my lineage, my great-granduncle four generations back, my great-great-great-great-granduncle was Aegon O'Rahala, and he was the last of the poets of the old Bardic school. In other words, the last of the poets of that old Druidic school. So because mm -hmm. when St. Patrick says, he says, the Druids, you have to go, you can you can become poets and you're called, but not quite poets, they're going to be called filler, which is a more, it's a poet who has the power to impact the world with his words. The words actually have power in the world, have, have potency, they're magic. But the gods thing is going to be taken over by um by the by the by the saints. Now um and so that seems to be to happen. But actually, there's an interesting idea that so some of the Druids decided, OK, we'll do that. If we're interested in words, we'll just become filler, we'll become poet and olive. And they kept this school of poetry. It's much more than poetry when we think of poetry, you know, studied in university in, in, in France or something. It's, it's poetry. It's the power of words to manifest, to create the world. It's incantatory language. And um, Aegon O'Reilly, this is my relation of four generations, my great granduncle four generations back. In other words, he existed six generations before me. He was the last poet, the last great professor poet of the old Bardic school, of that school. So he was entitled to wear a cloak of crimson bird feathers. And if that sounds shamanic, a cloak of crimson bird feathers, because it was because they were tracing their lineage back to these druids who would have worn, you know, bird feathers. Um, and uh, he was also... <laughs> I can't remember what the other thing I was going to say to him. Um, anyway, but so that was that lineage. But the, actually, but maybe the, so let's say, the, you know, some of the Druids became that, but some of the Druids actually might have become the Christian saints. Because when you look at the Christian saints, um, there's a lot, there's four or five of them are named Fuelon, named Fuelon. Now Fuelon means, 
basically the wolf man. So it's either the killer of the wolves, the tamer of the wolves, the man who has the wolf energy. Or like this in recent years, only in the last maybe five or ten years, there's a big parents are using are calling their kids Irish names. Okay. They're Irish names of the old saints. And you wouldn't believe them. So Oscar means lover of the deer is one saint. Oshin, baby deer, Ronan, little seal, or of the seal, or a follower of the seal. Um, well, there's loads of others I could give you, but they're all about animals. So it just seems that actually the most, and even like, even Cullum Kill, the sex so of St. Patrick is our most famous converting saint, then Cullum Kill up in Derry. Cullum Kill means Cullum, um, it means a dove, Kill is the woodland. The, wood, the dove of the woodland was the name of the bloody saint. Like they were clearly still Druidic figures, but just had taken on a bit of Christianity. And then even Bridget, uh, Bridget is the best example. She's our prime female goddess. Well, just to say, Cullum Kill, his, he set up his church in Dira, in Derry, kind of London, Derry, Derry, Northern Ireland. Derry, the word Derry means oak tree. It was basically a grove of the, you know, the, Druid, the Druids used to meet in these sacred oak groves, at least, <laughs> there was most likely to have been oak. So basically, they kept the places of worship in the old pagan druidic oak grove places they even he only called himself his his main monastery oak tree and he was called dove of the wood or dove of the the church and then bridget bridget the primarily saint was just an actual manifestation of the print of the goddess bridget who was the mm -hmm. goddess of um of, of fire of warming the soil after the wind of winter she was the goddess of spring so the kailach is our witch it's our witch figure the kailach the witch, she is the ultimate sovereign mother goddess of the land, but she is like Durga and Kali. She destroys the winter when she comes in. She destroys, sorry, she destroys all the plants. So she brings in winter, brings in the black abyss of, of, mm. of winter when the sun goes under the, the horizon. And then she converts into Bridget. Kailak okay. and the Bridget are one because nothing in the old world is linear. You know, it's yes and. So she is it's of this pagan... Um, yeah, duality. And then she's just brought in just to Christianity with the same name, with Bridget. And Bridget still does all of these weird pagan rituals right up until the modern day. So she's only, <coughs> she's worshipped around wells and she worships around wells. And wells were almost the entranceway. They were always the entranceway of the female goddess. Mm -hmm. They're basically mm -hmm. vulvas, vaginas in the landscape. And yeah. somehow this church allowed us keep our holy wells too, which were never, I mean, the you know saint patrick the council of saint patrick says he spent his whole time christianizing these wells but actually he didn't they knew the pagans were were, were centered their worship around these woodlands and the wells and um they tried to christianize them but for some reason we were allowed to keep all of our power and belief in both the wells and and, and to an extent in the woodlands too so we were lucky so, we alive. so so wells for instance and our would you say that wells are not being drained, for instance, in Ireland, or, um, or as a general rule, or some wells? Or the the problem with wells in Ireland is they're being polluted by runoff from nitrates from cattle. Yeah. So you know Ireland is now the third biggest exporter of beef. We are almost the second biggest importer of powdered milk into China. So Ireland is now running ads in China to convince mothers not to breastfeed and instead to use our powdered milk. We are producing vast amounts of milk, and okay. that means our because our farming has got very intensive. So yeah. there's huge amounts of nitrates going on onto the soil, yeah. and that's polluting them. 
Yeah. But the wells themselves were always in hidden away places. For some reason, the English made sure to destroy our woodlands and destroy our ancient trees. We had a concept called the billa. The billa okay. was a sacred tree. Every tribe and chieftain had its own um, sacred tree that they would fight over even more. They would fight to protect the tree more than the king because a tree could have been there 4,000 years or even 400 years where the king was only there 40 years. So it was our pride. And the English realized conquer the the irish <laughs> you need to and the, the, to be fair the christian church did before that to conquer the irish you need to destroy the trees but the wells were kind of secretive things they were little hidden away in little valleys and little in in rocks and they were more tended to by women in a quiet way rather than the big rituals that happened in the woodlands yeah. so we kept a lot of our we kept a huge amount of our ancient wells thankfully no it's, it's extremely interesting to hear these things uh uh like and i i i recognize a large amount of what you say would have very direct parallels uh in in you know, on my side of the water uh tree uh worship is and has been even until today one of the most dynamic forms of the animism uh, in in this part of North, northern europe too and and wells um i think that that uh, that we have suffered an, an extreme destruction of our sacred landscape uh in uh, just as an example in my little the village, little village where i grew up perhaps 30 40 bronze age burial mounds have been pl plowed down uh two on my father's fields one uh sacred well where people used to do uh, uh first of may rituals uh has been uh, uh, drained and blocked with concrete within the last 20 years uh it, it, like the 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 uh, the dis destruction of sacred landscape is so rampant and in many cases cases so reasoned that that it, it, it like it's it's really mind-boggling that people i mean can, can you imagine doing that here's a sacred well where people used to pray for miracles at 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 uh, at may day and now I'm, i'm i'm going out and filling it up with concrete i mean How can a human being with a heart do something like that? Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but it, it's uh, yes, no, I, it, it's super interesting. Also, the by, by the way, also the thing with the saints, uh, we have a number of saints that uh, sort of follow follow this Bridget Saint Bridget pattern that you described uh, in in relation to to earlier earlier deities. Mm -hmm. um, cool. I, I, with, let me try to return a little bit to this thing about language. You. Um, Because uh, I've been thinking uh, quite a bit about language and thinking, what is it? Also, what what exactly is it about language that that that's so important? And uh, I think that language can relatively easily be what do you say? What could you say? Like hacked by modernist rationalism. Uh, like I'm speaking a language that's well, probably as old as Gaelic. I'm I'm not sure, but it, I don't think we have any knowledge of anybody else speaking a language in these lands well they i mean we also came in with a yamnaya migration millennia ago you know like in the bronze age that you were talking about and so on but and the first uh, references to the language are about 2000 years old where they it start to be the first bits and pieces start to be written down and so on land connectedness in it i don't think so i think it's i don't think that contemporary danish we we, we used to have 31 words for fields i i know that 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 it used to be like that uh but uh but uh, um but the contemporary language has i think uh um 
the, the animist uh, relating in it has been significantly eroded. And uh, listening to you, I, I can't help thinking that perhaps the, the marginalization of Gaelic has perhaps even protected it a little bit, made it a little bit into a shell of these relations because it keeps it outside the flow of that entire consensus of modernity that means that any contemporary Scandinavian language with the possible ex exception of Icelandic, uh, perhaps Sami, uh, uh, will not be significantly more, have, have a significantly higher animist potential, potential than, than English. Or, um, what do you think about that observation? Does it make sense? Like, Yeah, I know. I think, I think it's a good, very good point. Um, because even when I talk about the Gaelic language or Irish language, it's very different if I'm talking about the Irish that's in the Gaeltacht, in the Irish-speaking areas that have kept the Irish alive, you know, said for millennia, as opposed to the Irish that's now spoken in the cities. And there's a great burgeoning in Irish that's spoken in the cities or outside these wild, these Irish-speaking areas along the West Coast. But there's no way is there the same richness. The same, they're not coming from a source of, of language. They're just the words they learn in books. It's a dead language. And they have no idea... Of the fairies like the fairies are totally infused within the irish language so to speak irish the way and i i was born in dublin you know in a non-irish speaking place but we spent a lot of our time in the west coast in this area whereas in 1970s the fishermen the hunter the fishermen were out in the curragh which is the traditional canvas and timber boat so it's the same as a kayak an inuit kayak in fact i brought a curragh maker up to greenland to see would they are they the same boat and the builders said look we're both making versions of the same a light boat with a canvas skin or a leather skin um and then the men the fishing the farmers had their horse and carts and they would bring the milk over across the beach across the strand to the creamery so that world um was so infused with the landscape and particularly as i said this fairy knowledge so there was a, the word she is the Irish for a fairy or sheog, um, but then she is a gust of wind because that was considered to be the fairies rushing by, and then um, a banshee, you know, a woman, a woman fairy. But she is even at the root of the word shirhan, which is peace. Uh, so the very sense of the word, and then she long ago that word would have been spelled s i d h e she for a fairy shida shida and shida linguistically is the exact same root as the Sanskrit word siddha which means a human being who has attained a certain degree of higher consciousness, the human who is no longer as caught in the human travail or the human condition. So you find the idea of Siddha in Buddhism, in Jainism, in Hinduism. And you see it even in a word like Yogini Siddha, which is a wizard. It's a Sanskrit or a Hindu word now. Yogini Siddha, Yogini, you know, a, a yoga, a female spiritual practitioner, Siddha of the sort of magical lore of the fairy lore. So again, one of those words that we share with Hindu because it's the same, but the show, like there's just so many words that have this fairy consciousness. Aisha, Aisha means the word for cancer, but so brain Aisha means a cancer drip or a cancer drop or a chemo trip, a chemo drip. But brain Aisha also means the magical droplets that fall on the tombs of certain tyrants causing rot. Or Bav, Bav means the crop appears in phantom bird form to certain families i'll give you one of them <laughs> that's pretty badass blue. blue means a youth hostel and blue means a fairy fort so ton wi-fi goddonus of blue either means the wi-fi is terrible in the fairy fort or the youth hostel you never you never quite know okay, i'll give you three other words like that one is pookie pookie means a supernatural covering 
that allows otherworldly beings like magical fairy beings appear invisible in this world, like a Harry Potter invisibility cloak with the Pookie they can come in. And Pookie also means a blindfold and some other things. And then um, Kola, Kola is a gate or a threshold, but Kola Vrak means an entranceway to a fairy portal, to a fairy palace or mansion that's halfway up a mountain surrounded by stones. Yeah. So very specific words about the magical beings that have always believed us. But like you can imagine, there's no one in a school in Dublin learning these Irish words anymore. No. Or, no, no, or no. even learning the fact that when my granny yeah. used to get us up on Easter, you know the tradition mm. in Easter Sunday that the sun would dance in the sky on Easter yeah. Sunday? It was a, yeah, it was we a had the same. Yeah. That the Christians took on. Yeah. Well, my granny would get us up to see this. And she had five or seven different words for the stages of, of the sunrise. So I always saw, I didn't, for me, it wasn't just Eileen the Grain at the sunrise. It was Bardo and Lay, the whitening of the day. It was Brack and Lay, then it was Daybreak. Then Fáinne Gall and Lay, which is the bright golden, no, the bright ring of the day. Then Súl and Lay becomes the eye of the day. Then Diaragon Dál Nail, which means the lighting of the two clouds. And then came Maidnachan, which is the, the, the morning, of the coming of morning. So if you have words for all those stages, suddenly a, sun, a sunrise can seem very different to you. I think the, the, some of what you, you, is really uh, potent in what you're saying is the importance of poetry, not only in the story, but all uh, or the history, but also in, in, uh, in the spirituality and, 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 and spirituality, no, um, yeah, spirituality and poetry as very deep in the language. And again, it's something that you very much find in 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 the Scandinavian uh, side of things as well. Icelanders, Icelanders again are this amazing comparison actually with the Irish, uh, because a little bit like the uh, Britonic bards were sort of the the uh, the poetic entertainers of the Middle Ages. The Icelandic skalds, which is a similar heathen transmission of uh, a poetic uh, competence, they became sort of they became like the Britonic Bards in the Frankish Frankish area. They became in the North Sea area these uh, travelers that would go around and be the masters of this amazing art uh, of of poetry. And we so we have uh, like perhaps also in in Ireland we have their poetry today. It's so complex that it it's almost impossible to read the the uh, like the the normal like the heathen poems and so on that's fairly easy to read you can learn the language you can you can read them but the skaldic poetry the real skaldic poetry which is also the oldest and whereby some of it goes all the way back to like the seven eight hundreds ah eight hundreds i think um it, 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 it the the it is a, a i remember a professor telling me saying this is probably the most complex form of oral poetic culture that humanity has ever created uh, because it's I can't even describe it now, uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I, I just think that the and and the image that you had before of was it was that a druid poetically uh, outlining the land uh, that I, fi I find that image incredibly powerful and beautiful. It's uh, the association, the media association <laughs> that I get on it is actually the uh, Jewish mysticism, where you have the idea of. Uh, God creating the world in the words, there be light, then that there be light that is explored in the Jewish mysticism. So God is moving the, the letters in between each other and creating the world by this 
linguistic motion uh, and stretching out the world and, and creating the different dimensions and so on. Uh, and and I, I, this druidic example you mentioned before, it, it, it sounds almost like an, a North, uh, North European um, culture way of saying the same or having a similar analysis of the deep linguistic structure of reality. Um, it, it, it's really, uh, really amazing. And it, there'd also be ties there with the mantra, and because like the Irish, the judge or the an, an esteemed knowledge of a person was a brehav, a brehav, and a brehav comes from the word breh, and breh is a Indo-European word that was shared in Sanskrit and Irish, which means master of mantras. So the judge was the master of the mantras. We kept all our knowledge, and I think in my book, thirty-two words for field, I make the point that in Kerala now there are certain Brahmins um, who. So ancient Brahmins in the woodlands who have these mantras, these chants, which are not based on any language that's known or any linguistic form. They seem, some people, some linguists even claim, would they be based on the sounds of birds or of animals? They just are so alien. And so maybe, you know, our first use of words was guttural sounds that utter word form, they manifested, they, they, they created things as a gift to them themselves, just like song is now. And that was what the mantra was. And so the master of the mantras kept the knowledge alive. And so like it's it's just uncanny the way we have the exact same word brehav in Irish is based on master of mantra. And then that the the similarities between the druid and the Brahman are so similar too. Again, they they they're just different versions of the same being that would have been in that unified Indo-European culture. Which, yeah. which is not no surprise. We know that we all share the one culture. But what's lovely if you come across a pocket in in the Scandinavian country, or in Ireland, or in Iceland, or even in in up in Karel in the in the woodlands, or up in the high Himalayas, where some of that culture didn't change so much, and so you see stronger echoes of mm. it. Yeah, I also think that, like from from one perspective, I think of what I do, and uh, also uh, about what you do uh, in in as a kind of. Uh, I would call it ontological decolonization. <laughs> Sounds a little bit highbrow, but it means like recovering, uh, recovering a relational reality, basically uh, from the clutches of a, a modern reality. Now, that's that's uh, work that I think is undertaken by a lot of indigenous populations around the world today. A lot of people have have had their uh, cognitive connection to reality that their perception of reality is steeply ruptured and they're often working on maintaining what they have and recovering what they've lost and and bringing back to dynamic life and so on and in that work i think there's a lot of actually contact particularly between people with peoples who are somehow closely related and similar 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 cultures uh you, you You've spoken a lot with uh, Native Americans. Have you ever spoken to to them about stuff like that? Uh, like, do the Lakota uh, get inspiration, or do they talk about getting inspiration from the the the, the Cheyenne or from the uh, Anishinaabe or so and or something like that? Different indigenous people talking to each other. I don't know. I don't know, just for me, it really has only been over the last two years. And the big thing I've realized was the limits of our own, of our connection with landscape. What we, the connection we had landscape were really beautiful, but they were all exploitative. There was a great idea in land. In Ireland, we didn't use the acre, you know, or, or, the, or the, the hectare to, the, to measure. We used the culpa and the culpa was the grazing ability of land. 
So a certain amount of land could be like uh, the, a culpa could be it would feed one cow for a year or 16 geese or like 12 sheep. So it's looking at the carrying capacity of the land rather than measuring it out with a ruler, which is a more holistic way of looking at the land. But yet, if you ask an indigenous people, or at least the ones I'm talking to, the idea of either an acre or a culpa just sets the idea that you own the land. The, you know, a lot of their words would have been about this, just the harmony, but the land you cannot differentiate, you cannot delineate land. It is in, in harmony with the sky, with the water, with the river. And I don't find that many words of that, that those type of words in Irish, unfortunately. Can, may I ask a little bit about your, your sort of, uh, uh, a little bit about your life, actually, because my, my impression that I, that I got when, when I, uh, sort of familiarized myself a little bit with you is that that you you have a little bit like me actually you have been you have really been in many different places around the world uh, and uh, you've been in Africa you have been have you been in South America as well North America and what has that what has that given you the, the, this traveling around the world in in terms of basically uh revalu revaluing or, or taking back i mean you probably you also come you come from real irish resistance warriors from the republican revolution and whatnot it's pretty cool i i grew up in a pig farm but uh, but uh, it's uh, but but uh, uh, uh can you can you tell a little bit about yeah. your, your backstory with meeting other cultures and that mm -hmm. stuff so as I said, I told you about this, you know, the, the poet, the great poet who was six generations back, he really inspired my great granduncle. My great granduncle was Dio Rally, who was the founder of the IRA or the Irish Volunteers that began the revolution. And so Dio Rally, he would call them as a V because he realized long ago, Celtic tribes, the elder of the tribe could put the T-H-E, the in front of their name. So his name was Michael O'Rally, but he called himself Dio Rally. And so in 1914, he went to France and Germany and bought guns. He had, he had money. He had a pub in Kerry, but he had earned a lot of money. So he put it all into buying huge amounts of guns. And then he trained the new IRA, the Irish Volunteers, in how to fight. And he was one of the leaders of the 1916 revolution against Britain. And he knew he was going to die. He knew they were the British. If you go up against the British, the biggest empire in the world, they're going to kill you. So he said goodbye to his four children and his pregnant wife. His wife was a very rich heiress from Philadelphia, New York. Um, so he knew he was going to sacrifice his life but my, and he was wearing the most beautiful Irish tweeds. Everything he did was 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 made in Ireland and he was, in, he was exploring, planting trees and things. But my granny at the time was 16 in 1916 and she adored her uncle. And she watched him sacrifice her life for this country, for the Irish language and the culture and the land. So um, she divided, she then devoted her life to the same thing. She spent she spent the next 30 years fighting. She did over three years in prison, in and out of prison. She did 33 days on hunger strike at one stage. And she, just like the O'Reilly, he went and learned the Irish language again. She never tried never to speak a word of English. And then I was born in the 70s and I was just like a, a foot soldier for her dream and for the O'Reilly's dream <laughs> but like any teenager you turn away from that so that sent me off traveling and so then I went off to Africa for a year and then I went off to South America for two years I went off to India um, and then I wrote books about those places and my time in those places and then that was maybe between 1989 and 1996 and in 1996 
the Irish language, we, Ireland suddenly had money, the Celtic tiger, the economic boom happened in Ireland. So the government set up an Irish language television station, a Gaelic television station. And my brother was making films. So he decided he'd make a travel series. So he came out to me. I was living up in the Himalayas in a cow shed at the time. And he came out to me and we made a series about India. And then we made a series about South America. Then we made a series about the Middle East and about China and about Greenland and everywhere. And so all the time we were looking, there's a concept in this television channel, the Irish language called Sulele, which is an other eye, the other eye. So it's trying to look at the world from the outsider perspective, which is what we do with the minority Gaelic language. And so I was always, I would just hunt out different indigenous tri tribes, whether it was the Bedouins or the Berbers or the, 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 the runners, the, what do they call that people in Mexico? I don't remember, Tarahumara. Um, and the Lanyu Island people in, in Taiwan, the Yami people and the Mosu people in China got to know their cultures. And then finally I decided, no, I need to come home to Ireland and learn about my people and learn. So I, I bought 10 acres in Westmeath and started farming and started just for myself and for local neighbours and grew, planted an oak wood and then slowly came back into comfort with my own language and my own culture. And so it's been a really good perspective, yeah. Yeah, the, the, um, our ancestors here on this side actually have, have a word for what you did there. Uh, uh, they call it Finn Fara, uh, which means visiting the Finns. Now, in the old language, the Finns means the Sami. So that that is the other. And that was basically, it was considered a way to, to acquire animist knowledge, to visit the Sami and learn from the Sami. And I think that that deep tendency are in so many of us who are defined by modernity that we we that that we almost like desperately need to seek out and learn from from uh, uh, from the others. But uh, but uh, no, but thank you very much for that. I think this was incredibly interesting. Uh, I feel I could uh, I could go on for for quite a lot a lot longer, but. Uh, do you have anywhere that you like people to go click and click it a click and subscribe to some of your places and or find you online or um... yeah there was a, so the, i did that there was an interesting project where i was recording the i you know i recorded my 250 words of fishermen telling their own local word in english and in irish and they're all to be found on my website which is just mancon.com m-a-n-c-h-a-n.com and I put those up on Instagram and on Twitter on my name. But there was one interesting one, a man in um, Connemara. He said he had the word shrill. And he said shrill is a word that the citizens of Galway, of the town of Galway, used to call Aran Island women. You know, the, the wilder women who lived out on the, the islands. who, When they ever came into the market, he'd gone all there and all shrill. But this man was a fisherman, John Babajak O'Connila. And he says to me, he met some fishermen from Bergen, from out beyond Bergen, off the coast. And he said to them that there was they had the same word over there, that the citizens of Bergen used to use that word shrill for women who came in off the islands that are off the coast of Norway there. <laughs> and they said it could be coincidence, but actually they could have been the same word because once a year they would have gone up to those northern fishing banks and the northern banks to fish. And they might have either swapped the word. Yeah. Uh, it was a lovely extra connection. Anyway, those words you'll find with the fisherman explaining that connection with with the town of Bergen. And um, you'll find that on my website. But otherwise, I think, yeah, the books aren't there. It's how most of those books are, my books are only published in Ireland. They will be published abroad next year. But otherwise, you'll find different things on websites and social media and things. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on here and uh, sharing some of your wisdom with, uh, with, uh, uh, me and with uh, the people following my channel. 
So uh, oh, thank everybody, Monaghan McGon, an amazing uh, Irish uh, cultural worker, thinker. <laughs> Good. And I hope to see you one day, somehow, somewhere. <laughs> That'll be great. Thanks so much. Good to talk.